Welcome to the Be Free RE podcast, where you learn how to make your job optional. I'm your host, John, who's just getting started on his journey. But in the last year, I moved across the country, bought four apartments, make money as a landlord, no longer pay rent, and I have my first child. I'm joined by your co-host and my guide, Tony Angotti, who in five years quit his job and now manages over 80 units through a combination of house hacks, flips, and partnerships. So with that, let's jump into how you can do less of what you have to do and more of what you want to do. All right, Tony, welcome. How you living? Keeping on, keeping on. Do you always say the same thing whenever we're talking? Is that what I say? Yeah. yeah. Living my best life. Oh, I like that. A little Duval. <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, how's uh, how's everything going in your household? Things holding down? Yeah, I'm trying to grow a nice apocalypse beard. It's <laughs> going about as well as a 15-year-old trying to grow a beard, so... <laughs> Yeah. Not that well. It's nice but, all, uh, uh, the other times of the year when you don't have to sh- shave as much. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I'm ready to do, uh, talk about some real estate, talk about something different than whatever my wife has to talk about because that's the only person I can see while I'm quarantined. So <laughs> here we go. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, today we have some calls basically about different deals. Uh, people are asking about the Burr strategy, which is kind of all the buzz now. And then also some Burr. questions about... Uh, buy and hold versus flips so a little something to get your mind on something new nice all right well let's get started cool let's jump into it hi anthony my name is sam vote i have a couple rental properties in the area and i have a quick question i was wondering how you decide whether you are going to flip or do a long-term buy and hold rental um and, and how you go about making that decision thank you Hey, Sam, when you ask the question, I guess there's two different sorts of questions here. Uh, Number one would be this determination on a specific property, and then number two would be the strategies in general. So number one, it's just going to come down to, I guess, how much cash the property needs and then what the value is on the out, um, depending on how you analyze it and what it works better as as far as return on investment. That's how you'd make your decision. Um, I think that long-term rental properties end up returning a lot better um, just because you get all of the different advantages of real estate. Flipping is really just for quick cash. So if you're going to have a super cash-intensive project, you could either refinance the money out after you rent it or you could just sell it. When we look at properties to flip, we're actually normally looking at them as kind of delayed flips. So we're looking at properties where maybe they're single family homes. We're going to put a renter in there, um, do a basic renovation, do some things to kind of protect the property for when we sell it. And then uh, five, 10, however many years later, we'll sell it when the value eventually goes up. Um, We do this in kind of more emerging neighborhoods. That's what we've done. However, as I've gotten into more uh, commercial size apartment buildings, I don't do as much of that anymore second question I'll talk about with John here, just kind of decision between flipping and renting as a landlord. Um, this is an investment strategy in general. I guess, John, have you ever given that any thought? Um, you're probably closer to that decision point than I am. Um, so yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, 
what can I say? I think the strategy is different for different markets and then also for different personality types. You know, if you don't want to be involved in dealing with tenants, obviously flips works, but you're going to be dealing with contractors. So, you know, I, I think each has its pros and cons. And then for us, we're much more about trying to build um, over the long term and, um, you know, uh, I think flipping is kind of a job, whereas owning property is owning an asset, um, you know. So it's it's just a different mentality overall. I, I don't think one is better or worse, so to speak, but uh, there's there's just different kind of risks. Like getting a bad tenant is uh, can be uh, very emotionally draining versus, you know, getting a bad flip can be financially disastrous um, if you, uh, you get over levered or you know, Mm -hmm. you know, so I don't know. What are your thoughts, Tony? Yeah. I mean, the thing with buy and hold rental investing that I like more than flipping in general is that even if you do buy a bad deal, time fixes a lot of your problems. Like, I mean, obviously if you buy a terrible, horrible deal, time is, it's going to take a lot of time to fix those problems. Like if you buy a marginal deal, over time you're still going to end up a little bit ahead because you get that principal pay down you get rent appreciation property appreciation a lot of those kind of things that are going to help you out long term you buy a bad deal with a flip and you're in it for hard money or whatever and you're you're basically losing money i mean it's more transactional in nature obviously so if you buy poorly you have time's not going to help you I mean, unless you can turn it into a rental and slow flip it like I was talking about, you're just kind of stuck. It also, I feel like buy and hold investing works in kind of any market cycle. Like you can kind of always be a buy and hold rental investor. Um, this, I mean, the strategy works no matter what point in the cycle we're in. But flipping, like you don't want to build a whole business around flipping and then hit the down to like the downward side of the real estate cycle because you never want to be trying to sell on the way down you know it gets a lot harder um you also touched on the main point why i don't flip houses because i think it's just a job it's like just a whole nother thing you have to build a whole new even if you're turning it into a business and you're outsourcing everything there's no way i feel to make it truly passive event you hit a certain point with the rental portfolio that you can make it a lot closer to passive than flipping so it's my general concept but my real reason i don't flip is just because i hate working with contractors and that's like (laughs) half half of the battle when it comes to flipping so i don't know yeah, to me, uh, I totally agree. Like, there's a timing in the market where I think flipping can be really uh, good. When I say market, I also mean like neighborhood, like you were saying with, you know, up and coming neighborhoods. And if you are a contractor and you're looking to get involved, you know, and you have a very particular set of skills, I do think, you know, you're instead of doing the work for strictly getting paid, you know, then you can ideally own some of the house and also own some of the appreciation you put into the property. But, you know, it's, it's obviously the trade-off, you know, one, you're getting cold, hard cash. The other one, there's just more risk involved. So, um, that, that would be maybe like one exception where I would say maybe, you know, you have, you have an advantage in that market because of your skill set. 
<laughs> the other funny thing about flipping that I think is, I guess it's not funny. It's just interesting is that on a lot of flips that you see, the people that end up making the most money are the wholesaler that sold it to the flipper, oh, the agents that sold the house, and then the contractors that worked on it. And then the flippers left with like $15,000. So it's like for all that risk and uh, like stress and everything, they're the ones who don't even make the most money. You'd make more money just wholesaling houses than you would actually being the flipper for a lot of inexperienced flippers. Um, I don't know. Do you That's... do you see um, kind of the resale prices on houses that kind of have this I've been flipped time window uh, in terms of sale history? Do you see those getting depressed a little bit? Like people know, oh, I'm buying from a flipper, so, you know... Um, I can only speak for Pittsburgh. I can't really speak for national because I, you know, I'm only, I'm obviously only work as a realtor in Pittsburgh, but in Pittsburgh's market, particularly a lot of the competition and the houses are dated, especially the ones that people are buying for like flips. A lot of the neighborhoods, you see a lot of like dated houses as far as their market competition for the house. So I don't really see the flipped houses go down in price because they're flip houses. Mm. Um, they usually go away super fast because just because they're completely renovated. And on top of that, people are more rational about their list price whenever they're flipping the house versus, well, most people, some people aren't, but most people are more rational about their sale price when they're doing a flip than people who like it's their family home for 15 years. Mm. They feel more emotional about it so they're more likely to kind of list too high and then sit on the market for a while or something like that um additionally flippers have already considered what their after repair value is before they even started the project got it so they've kind of worked that in already Mm. okay that's good perspective all right let's hop over to michael with his question about the burr strategy Hi, Tony. It's Mike from New York. Uh, I have a question. Uh, I've heard of a real estate investing method called Burr, B with four R's. Can you explain how that works and you know what the advantages and disadvantages are and how easy is it to find properties for this to work with? Thanks a lot. If we're going to talk about Burr, a quick definition here. This is just a strategy of real estate investing that stands for buy, renovate, rent, refinance, and then eventually repeat. There's a lot of advantages and disadvantages that I'll talk about with John here in a second. Um, The possibility of finding them, you asked about the availability, kind of depends on the area and the market. Um, We'll sort of go over a little bit, John and I together here, of uh, the criteria that you kind of need to find to fit the property. But I consider Burr investing as needing to be in a little bit of a Goldilocks zone as far as deals. You need an area that's nice enough to demand good enough rent, but also that's not too nice to the point that your um, value after you renovate the property is so high that you can't cash flow once you're renting it. So John, I guess, uh, do you have any comments on Burr before we kind of break into it? I, I don't have too many thoughts. It's not something we've done. Uh, I, it does feel like the golden goose to me, like everyone wants to do it, so to speak. But, uh, 
uh, you know, I think there was probably a time in the market where uh, it was a much more viable and uh, sustainable kind of strategy for building wealth. But I think if you're going to wait and only do burr deals that are going to be perfect burrs where you have no cash left in and you refinance everything out and then some, uh, it's going to be hard for you to um, build the experience that will ideally help you get the deals that will be burrs one day, if that makes sense. That's that's my yeah, impression. That makes sense. Uh, I mean, what I was trying to say about the Goldilocks zone there is like, it's kind of a tool to have in your tool belt. But if you focus exclusively on burrs, the way that the seller's market is right now, it's hard to find deals, like you said, that are total cash out deals. I mean, you can find them, but you're usually going to be sourcing those yourself. I mean, if you want to find deals that work with the Burr strategy and that's your thing and that's what you want to do, then um, usually going to be mailing yourself, self-sourcing. I know that at least in Pittsburgh, which is one of the better markets in the country to invest in real estate, it's even hard here to find ones that work unless you're in like pretty C-minus class or less neighborhoods. Um so it's kind of tough to find those deals right now. Um, they still exist. I just think that your deal flow is going to be kind of limited. I guess as far as going through kind of how it works, we can just touch on each point and then kind of go over a little bit of things that you need to focus on, though, because it is still a useful tool. I know that personally I've done it a few times on single families and then now that we do more apartment investing that's like the whole strategy i mean mm -hmm. we buy these places approve the net operating income refinance out our private debt um and that's that's our whole thing uh it's just a little bit easier to execute on the multifamily scale harder to find deals i'll say that much because same thing in multifamily space everybody wants value add everybody wants to refinance out their investors so the market's super saturated super hard to find deals um but we're doing a whole bunch of stuff to be able to find them that's a conversation for another day that's like deal sourcing but if we just look at the strategy in general it's discussed ad nauseum on the internet and on podcasts and everything it's like like you said everybody and their mother wants to do the bird deal whether they don't know anything about real estate investing or they know a bunch of stuff uh, the golden goose was, I think, the word that you yeah. described. Hey, I yeah. mean, and it makes sense, right? Because it, I mean, yeah, on paper it's great. Exactly. You keep floating. You keep floating the same money over and over and over. Works should be able to do infinite number of deals with the same source of cash. Um, before we comment on that, though, so on the buy side, the thing that when you're looking to buy them is you're essentially looking for like the same properties flippers are because you need to look at okay, my purchase price plus my renovations, I need to be able to refinance out all that cash. So you need to know on the back end what you're able to refinance out. So Flipper's usually going to look at that 70% of the after repair value. That's their total cost of project has to be 70% of the after repair value. You're looking for something similar. However, on certain deals, you might be able to do 75% or 80% or whatever your financing on the back end is going to allow. Um, that's on the after repair value. So when you're looking to buy them, you need to do that calculation. 
the difficulty with doing that calculation and part of the difficulty with doing the burst strategy as your first deal is not only do you need to be a good landlord to the point that you know you can get market rent, you know you can maintain tenants at the market rent for at least a year of seasoning period that you'll need, which is just the amount of time that you have the property operating before you can refinance. But you also need to have all the skills of an efficient flipper because you need to be able to estimate your repair expenses pretty well. You need to be able to manage the contractors to finish the job and everything. So that's kind of the difficult thing with buying. And then the second R, which is renovating the deal, is you need to combine the skills of, you basically need to have all the skills of a very good flipper to be able to execute the first two letters, B and R. So that's kind of the difficult thing. So you're gonna renovate your property the only somewhat easier part about the burst strategy than a flip is when you renovate, you're really only needing to renovate to like rental grade. So instead of renovating to a flip quality thing, you're just looking at what does my market rent, what do my market rentals require to get the market rent that I expected? Um, I guess to back up a little bit on the buy side too you need to analyze it after the refinance to make sure that you're still going to cash flow at your numbers. So after you refinance the property, you need to know that with that new mortgage, you're still making money because you don't want to be negative at the end. Then there's no point of doing this, right? <laughs> that yeah. doesn't make sense. Exactly. Um, yeah. Do you have any comments on that before I keep running through all the R's? No, I don't. Yeah. I mean, you know, in a word to me, like uh, the tool belt, analogy is great and like it's all predicated on a, a solid deal so i think we're you know to what you're essentially going through is what does a solid deal mean uh in this context yep. you know 70 percent rule and then after you're going to refinance it you need the rent to cover those are essentially the two key components uh from the numbers standpoint yeah and the benefit to the that renovation that you're doing too is ideally on the back end you're Repairs and capex should be somewhat minimal for at least the first five to ten years because you've completely renovated the property. So you would hopefully not have as many repairs and capex initially, unless you did a shoddy job fixing it up. Um, and then you have the rent part, which is where you then need to step into your landlord hat. Or if you have a property manager, you basically need to be having the same skills as like a pretty experienced landlord or overseer of property manager to make sure that you're renting it and keeping your expenses under in check until you do the next one, which is refinancing. So on the refinance, you should ideally have your refinance lender and terms lined up before you even start this project. Um, because a lot of times when people are doing this, they're using hard money, uh, which is just high interest loan, high, high points to purchase and renovate the property problem with that is if you're inexperienced at renovating properties and you're inexperienced at being a landlord and a property manager, well, all your timelines, the things you thought were going to take you three months are probably going to take you six months, eight months, 12 months because you're brand new. So doing Burr as your first deal, very difficult. Um, but assuming all that goes perfectly, if you don't have a lender to refinance out your high interest money, you're going to get stuck because those hard money loans usually only have a year until they're due. So like you got to get all this done fast. So you need to know how quick your bank seasons the property, which just means how long um, 
you need to be operating the property for them to give you a new loan on the new appraised value. It's the other thing to keep in mind. Some banks will not lend to you on the new appraised value. They'll only lend to you based on purchase place plus repairs, which if you're counting on all your money out, doesn't help you. And then say, even say you get through all this stuff without any problems, then comes the repeat. If you started with no cash and you take all of the money from the original deal and you put it into the next deal, you're stuck with no reserves. If you have no reserves and you're the owner of a rental property, you're going to have a bad day <laughs> because when something breaks, you're going to have to be tapping into all kinds of weird sources. If you don't have tenants for a while, again, you're going to have to tap into weird sources of money. It's going to be stressful. It's going to be horrible. So the way that if somebody's going to do the birth strategy, I suggest getting into it is come into it from a position of financial strength. Make sure that you have reserves set aside for this property after you refinance and then use the money in excess of the reserves to actually do the deal. The problem is that, like I said, people get into it with hard money. They don't have any cash. The reason they're interested in this is because they don't need cash. But if you get into it with no cash, any kind of real estate investing, you're going to get screwed or you're just lucky. <laughs> One of the two. I mean, roll the dice if you want, I guess. But it's probably not prudent advice. So that's the birth strategy in a nutshell. Like I said, this stuff is discussed ad nauseum on online. Uh, it's the flavor of the week for everybody that wants to get started. So if I had a dime for everybody that called me about the birth strategy as a realtor, I wouldn't even need to work. I would just be collecting dimes and be a millionaire. Um, so I don't know. Do you have any comments on any of that? Yeah, I mean, I guess from my side, you know, Tony's an agent. So uh, as someone who's not an agent, I do think you always have to ask yourself like, well, why would I even be getting this deal? If if it was a burr slam dunk, you know, why why would someone else give it to me? And, uh, you know, it requires no cash. You know, there's a bunch of stuff that has to line up. But, you know, uh, that's always, I think, something you have to be like strategically thinking about in real estate is like, why would anyone pick me? Uh, and it's a very hard question to, to figure out for Burr. And I do think that's why you basically have to self-source the deal. Uh, because uh, otherwise yeah. it's, it's either out of market, but you know, if it's an out of market, like if, if Tony finds an out, like a, an out of market Burr deal, somehow you know he's gonna know somebody that he's gonna pass it along to and get commission out of the thing and you know so it's just it's the golden goose i i, I guess you know yeah that's it i mean i talk yeah i talk with customers up front i say like look i do apartments now so i'm not touching like single family birth strategy i'm not doing that and i really only invest in my neighborhood so if you're looking for stuff like this in my neighborhood that are apartments I'm not giving it to you. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll help you find a regular deal in my neighborhood. Fine. But everywhere else in the city, I'm like, that's all fair game. Like, I'm not touching that stuff, though. So I'll send you that stuff all day. But thing is, like, there aren't a ton of people like me that are only operating in certain neighborhoods. Most people that I know that are investors are buying deals wherever. And then you look at wholesalers. People are like, oh, well, I'll find deals from wholesalers. Well, then they're a big reason why wholesalers are wholesalers is other than the few big ones is because they're not starting with any cash. So if they find a deal that they don't need any cash to do, that's what they're going to do. 
I mean, they're just going to take it. And then everything else they pass on is the stuff that's like, okay, it works if you squint. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it um, works. I like that. So it works like, if you squint. Because, <laughs> because that's, that's the thing is just that a lot of these deals that are work for the burst strategy, the market's so hot that like if somebody comes across that, they're either giving it to somebody that they've worked with before that right. they trust. So you either have to build that trust with somebody over time, which to be honest comes as an agent, like I'm giving those deals to people that I've worked with on every other type of deal on yeah. the MLS or whatever. So like people come from out of state. I give my people that I've worked with before the good deals that I see. But if somebody just calls me up out of the blue and says, like, I've had people call me, I whatever. There's a certain overseas group called All Time. There's this Project <laughs> X thing. I, I'm not going to name names. It's cool. Whatever. But they call All Time and they're like, "What? I want your good deals. Can I have your good deals? It's like, where are your good deals? It's like, dude, get out of here. I don't even know you. I mean, if you would have like, if we would have spent some time trying to build a relationship, like, <laughs> you know, maybe you offered or looked at some MLS properties. We started working together a little bit. We built a relationship. Then yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you my good deals. But like, if you just call me out of nowhere and say, I want your good deals, it's like, dude, I got people that I like and that I trust, and you called me out of nowhere. So like, I'm not that hard up for money. And then, and if somebody says, oh, yeah, I'm going to give you your, my best deals, that's somebody that doesn't have good deals. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, so I don't know, because they don't have business. And then that's the other thing. Like, that's perfect because I don't have that perspective that you said. Like, you got to kind of wonder, like, where are the people that you're working with making their money? Because they're obviously going to direct you to where they're making their money, whether it's consciously or subconsciously. That's what most people are going to do. So... Yeah, I mean, like, and, and I have this thing where it's like, look, you either need to be a favorite or you need to be the best at it. So when this comes to, like, getting a bird deal, you either need to be a favorite of somebody and have it land in your lap uh, through relationships or nepotism or whatever, or you need to be awesome at sourcing deals. And I, I really think short of those two things, uh, you know, um, you're just in a very competitive market. You know, you're in a very competitive place, so... Yeah. And if you're trying to be number one, which is being a favorite, the key there is to just not be a pain in the ass. Like, <laughs> because there are people who on the bird deals want it, want it to be so clean. They want the budget to be super yeah. straightforward. They want the purchase price to be perfect. They want no risk when it's like, dude, this type of deal is not for people with a low risk tolerance. Like there's a lot of risk here. Yeah. So if you don't have a high risk tolerance, then this is not for you. That's probably actually something we should talk about because we've talked about this off air before. And it's like, look, even if I found this, like if I actually found a bird deal and I gave it to some of my friends that haven't done a single deal yet, they wouldn't even pull the trigger on it because it is yep. a, it's a gnarly project. You know, you're not looking at something where it's like, oh, I see how this could easily turn around. You're like, oh man. I mean, listen to the stories. People find like tree stumps in the yep. in the middle of the floor. You know, it's they're very, you know, it in the, in a skiing analogy, it would be like, you know, this is not a 
a, a green circle or a blue square. You know, this is some number of black diamonds. <laughs> this is that, uh, you ever play that stupid Windows 95 game with the ski guy? Yes, <laughs> ski free. Yeah, this this is like the last part of it where the abominable snowman's there and you have to dodge the snowman guy. That's actually <laughs> very true though. And that snowman guy is your private lender balloon payment. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Wow. So I mean... It's definitely, like I said, something to keep in your tool belt. If you're a total newbie, you better have a good mentor or somebody to help you out, would be my advice. Um, You better have a lot of your ducks in a row or it's going to be a rough learning experience for you. Um, But, and it's also hard to find. So when you see it, be ready to execute. But you're going to limit yourself if that's the only thing you're trying to do. The other thing I say is like people are so obsessed with getting all of their money out of the deal. Like I want all of my cash out. But if you leave like five to $10,000 in the deal, who cares? I mean, would you buy a property that's cash flowing $200 a month that's maintenance free for $10,000? Yeah. Would you buy it for $5,000? Yeah. So who cares? I mean, that's part of coming to it, part of what we said or what I said earlier, coming to it from a position of financial strength and not coming to it from a, I'm trying to do money or deals with no money. Because if you're really trying to do deals with no money, your first step is to build a better financial foundation for yourself. Whatever you need to do, save up some money. Because if you don't have that money saved up, you're going to get smashed. Yeah. Or like I said, you're just super lucky. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, even us, like we, we basically got lucky on our first deal, which Tony, you point us in the direction of, we bought in the dead of winter, you know, it was like a super rundown duplex with a million walk upstairs and we could probably burr that deal. You know, we, we'd leave some money in it right now, depending on the appraisal, but yeah, you know, like it, it's not like we're awesome at what we did, but because we did it as a part of a house hack, you know, it, yep. it's an option now if we want to access that capital, if we want to do those things. So it's all just kind of predicated. And really, candidly, that was, you know, that was probably some sourcing on our part with picking the right agent and a whole bunch of luck, to be super honest. But like when we bought that property, it was like, holy shit, this is going to be a lot of work. So, yeah. And I mean, to be honest, that's a, that property specifically was a lot less work than most of the bird deals out there. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing on that point, too, is like if you're trying to get started for not a lot of money, the best place to start is house hacking because yeah. like you need to pay to live somewhere anyway. So like as long as you're in the position to do it, just go live in whatever your project you're doing. If it's a burr project, you're trying to actually take the money out, whatever, just live in it while you fix it up and then delay your timeline a bit use like an fha loan or something and get it done that way a lot less risk and a lot less headache if you get started so just because you can't do a bird deal right away just because tony's being discouraging and a naysayer my wife would get on me for this um (laughs) (laughs) it's not that i hate the burst strategy i just think it's a rough way for people to do their first deal um i'd say your first deal you should look for something like either house hacking if you're in a market that works for that, or even just find an experienced investor that's doing the bird deals and say, look, on your next deal, can I put all the cash up? We'll split it 50-50. My only ask of you is that you teach me everything that you're doing. 
And I mean, you're telling an experienced investor, hey, you get a free house, half a free house. Like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And that's a better way to get started as long as you trust the person than paying 40 grand for a coaching class too. So, I mean, yeah, those are the two ways I'd get started if I was restarting. And I guess I did get started with house hacking. So (laughs) there you go. Yeah. No, I think that's a great way to end it because there's definitely ways to do it. You know, we are positive on it, but it's, uh, you know, it's challenging and you're going to want help. Help or experience, I guess we should say. So, yep. Perfect. All right. So just to recap what we discussed today, talk about flipping versus buy and hold. And it really just boils down to what's your goal? You know, flipping is, is a job. Buy and hold is more of a long-term investment, and there's just different balances in terms of where we are in the market, in your geography, you know, with the real estate cycle, and also um, what, what you're personally trying to accomplish in terms of cash-in and cash-out timelines. And then we talked about Burr. Uh, Tony basically said, this is a tool in your tool belt, and, uh, you know, there are easier ways to get involved and get started with investing. Uh, it's actually a, a difficult um, technique because you need a good deal, you need good landlord skills, and you need good contractor skills. And he actually recommended, I think, one of the best pieces of advice I've heard about if you are uh, really focused on doing Burr, find someone else who's already doing it and offer to partner up as a capital in exchange for essentially their, their tutelage. So there we are. Uh, anything else that I left out, Tony? Nope. That's that's pretty much a summary there. All right, perfect. So what uh, would you learn learn this week? Oh, boy. Um, so we were going to reach out proactively to our tenants about a few things, and uh, we got some advice from a lawyer. And it was essentially like, hey, anything that you're going to do for one of your tenants, you need to be prepared to do for all of them. Otherwise, it can be viewed as discrimination. So that was really interesting because uh, we were just trying to be kind in kind of a moment of uh, struggle. But it really made us think about um, uh, just kind of our operating procedures as landlords. And in terms of, you know, we need to be very consistent here just from a legality standpoint. It sounds terrible and like very defensive but uh you know we haven't even been doing this for very long and you do just encounter very combative people so unfortunately it is a necessary evil so uh be documented be consistent and have like a strict set of guidelines you're going to follow so that you don't wind up on the just the wrong side of a weird legal letter or something one day yeah i mean that's true like the more and more properties you get the more and more of a target you are for people to sue so like if you have anything not being taken care of to the right standard, then you can get, you know, you can get yourself in hot water, that sort of thing. So like you said, talk to a lawyer, make sure you do everything consistently, write it down. Um, that actually is kind of my lesson is just writing down processes in general. Um, we actually had a situation recently where, What I've always done is I've never actually canceled my utilities if they're in my name before the tenant takes over. I've always kept them in my name and then the tenant just puts them in their name and that's what cancels it. Um, My assistant actually recently, she turned off the utilities because the tenant was putting them in the tenant's name. Um, Fortunately, it's not super 
cold. But long story short, the tenant didn't uh, didn't put them in their their name for day one, so there were no no utilities oh, at the property, which is kind of rough. And I mean, that's something that isn't even my assistant's fault. That's my fault for not having a process in place that she's supposed to follow. Mm-hmm. So that kind of taught me that even the small stuff that can be overlooked, you should really have a process in place because no matter if you own two properties, 40 properties, a thousand properties, whatever, the more of a guideline that you have to kind of replace yourself in the day-to-day tasks, the smoother things are going to go for you. So even if you never want to have a giant portfolio, like I call it the hit by the bus strategy. So like if I went outside tomorrow and got hit by a bus, would my wife be able to keep our portfolio afloat? The answer for that currently is unfortunately no. So I hope I don't walk in front of any buses anytime soon. But ultimately the goal should be so that someone can pick up everything, have a manual and just execute it. Because like I said, even if you only have two or three properties and you're self-managing it could very easily be you could die and your family could be stuck with these properties. And I see it all the time where kids, kids don't want to do anything with the properties because they just see it as this giant pain in the butt, but it's really just because they don't know about it. There's so much wealth that could be passed on through generations that kids just are like, well, I don't want to deal with the properties. But if mom or dad actually had systems and a book that they could just open up that said, Hey, this is what you do. Would they be more likely to do it? Probably. So I don't know. Just have systems in general, even on the stupid small stuff that seems insignificant because it's only insignificant until it doesn't get done and the pipes burst and you have a flood. Yeah. Also, you just don't want to spend time thinking about something twice. I mean, you've already thought about it once. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, once you figured it out, you know, don't punish yourself. Uh, make yourself figure it out a second time. We we have a rule in our house, which is whenever we say to ourselves like, "Oh, will you remind me?" or "I need to remember," it's like, "Oh no 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 no, that's not how that <laughs> works." Because you're not going to remember. You know, you're a busy person. It's not because you're stupid. It's just you know you got a lot going on. So tell it to Siri, yeah. and to have Siri remind you monthly. Yeah, well, well or Cortana, or uh, who are the other ones? I think it's just Alexa. Okay, Google. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, Google. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, where uh, where can they find out more about our podcast and where can they find out more about me? I'll give them the me. You give them the podcast. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> you can find Tony. His number is. No. Exactly. Well, actually, Text guess, me anytime. I guess you just give out your number as an agent. So that wouldn't, that's, that's yeah. a pretty hollow threat, actually. People can find it if they want to. But yeah, where can they find out more about the podcast? Where are we? Podcast is uh, on Instagram at B-E-F-R-E-E-R-E. Send over your questions and we'll answer them on the show. Tony, where are you at? I am at 412agent on Instagram. 412agent.com is my website. 412 agent is my facebook you can find me on linkedin i guess too um and then additionally if you guys can just subscribe and rate us we should probably be throwing that plug into these too um so yeah if you can subscribe and rate us that'd be great um and also we're going to start taking these questions by phone so if you follow us on instagram we're going to post something with the phone number to call 
to leave us a voicemail with your questions so that we can start engaging all of you guys a lot more. All right, perfect. All right, Tony, send them off. Enjoy your week. Stay well. Or else. (laughs) See you guys. Yeah, sure. Bye. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you want more, check us out at BeFreeRE on Instagram. And let us know what you thought. Stay free.